Hello and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? And today, oh my goodness, I am so so over excited because our special guest today, Brittany Barado, is on the show with us. And let me tell you a little bit about Brittany. Oh my goodness, she first of all, she is a co-founder, executive director, and a podcast host of FemTap Focus. Uh, while finishing her PhD in genetics at Baylor's College of Medicine, Brittany became the CEO and co-founder of the revolutionary dating app Therimore, the first nationwide DNA-based dating app. Wow. She then embarked on a new path into the venture capital world at Capital Factory. Brittany helped launch the firm's Houston location under her leadership. The portfolio group 205% year over year. Wow, that's incredible. Brittany now has her sight on advancing the women's health and wellness community through the FemTap Focus. She is the host of the FemTap Focus podcast, which have over 100 episodes 30K downloads and subscriber over a hundred countries. Oh my goodness. Femta Focus have assisted hundreds of Femta founders to build, launch, and succeed in their venture. Today, Brittany is a founding partner and emerging fund manager at Coyote Venture, an early stage Femta investment firm. With that, everybody, I am so, so, so excited. And thank you so much, Brittany, for joining us. And welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you for having me. What a hype woman, man. You are a hype woman. <laughs> it's all because you are amazing. So with that, Brittany, I am so, so pumped. I'm sure so is our audience. I'm going to kick off the first question is, Brittany, how does all the magic, how the journey start? Oof, I mean, it's a, that's actually a big question, <laughs> right? Um, well, you know, I was born and raised in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. If anyone is listening to this and you're from New Jersey, you're probably going to feel really familiar with the way that I talk. Um, people from New Jersey are a little bit more aggressive. We're, we speak quickly. We're a little bit more blunt. Um, as compared to the South, when I was living in Texas, people were like, wow, you were very straightforward. <laughs> because in the South, they like to talk around things. Um, but yeah, born and raised in New Jersey. I was raised in a family of which uh, college education was not really on the table. No one in my family had gone to college. Um, we were more concerned about being able to pay our electricity bills, honestly. Um, that's the kind of family I grew up in. And for me, uh, education was my way out. Education was my way out of poverty. It was my way out of, uh, you know, the situation I would grew up in and it was a way out of the County. <laughs> I was, I was living in, in Northern New Jersey. And it's really interesting to see, um, the people who are still there, you know, and then the folks that like left and all that stuff. So I really, you know, just doubled down in studying and, and luckily, thank goodness, studying and education came very easily to me. I love studying. I'm a little nerd. I will be a student forever and ever and ever. I love it so much. Um, and in, uh, I think it was eighth grade, I learned about cellular biology and I learned about DNA and I was like, hold up. You telling me that my DNA is made up of 3 billion nucleotides and it's essentially the recipe of who I am. And yeah, give or take, that's pretty much what it is. And I just fell in love. I just became super obsessed with DNA. Um, I thought I wanted to be a genetic counselor because I like to help people and I love DNA. Um, then I went, so I went to college and if anyone's listening and you're thinking about what career you want, I highly recommend shadowing uh, somebody for the day that does your job, right? This job you're thinking about doing. Because in college, I shadowed a genetic counselor for the day, and that individual spent the entire day telling moms and dads that their newborn baby was going to be very sick and that they had to make a hard decision. And I was like, oh my God, my dream job is the worst job in the whole wide world. Like, I don't want to have a job where I tell people their babies are sick all day. Like, that sounds terrible. And so I said, oh my gosh, I can't do that. 
went back to my advisor, asked what I should do. He suggested, you know, laboratory research. Um, fast forward, I'm getting a PhD in genetics. Uh, still kind of confused about my career, um, you know, because I wasn't going to be a genetic counselor, but what was I going to do? I had too much personality to work in a laboratory my whole life. No one got my jokes. Like, what the heck was I going to do? And also academia is very slow and it's very bound up in red tape. I mean, government and academia, man, it is so slow. There's so many rules. There's so many papers. There's so many meetings that you don't need. And I just, my, um, my energy doesn't work well in that. And so I discovered the entrepreneurship community in Houston. This is when I was pursuing my PhD in genetics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And they have a very strong entrepreneurship scene. And that's kind of where I found my tribe and started my ventures into startups. So that's kind of like a little dash of like how I got to here, but happy to dig into any pieces of that. You know, first of all, you say eighth grade, you're falling out of the DNA and you think about, oh my God, this is your dream job. And the day you show up in college, you have that one day shattering experience and you realize that's not what you wanted. That <laughs> was like the opposite of what I wanted. <laughs> it wasn't even just like 10%. It was like literally the worst job in the world. <laughs> how do you how do you handle that, right? Almost like your first step in a way where your entire life, entire dream was built on that as a perfect ideal world. And that is the first no you ever get in the real world. How mm -hmm. do you overcome that? Well, you know, what I did is what I would suggest, which is I went to my academic advisor, Dr. Roger Knowles. He still teaches neuroscience at Drew University. And uh, I went to him very dramatic, you know, like my life was ruined, you know, and he must see this every day as an academic advisor, you know, and he said, it's okay. Let's pivot. Right. So this is my introduction to pivoting, um, which startups do all the time. And uh, he said, why don't, you know, the summer's coming up. I have a laboratory. I'm looking for interns. Why don't you do an internship this summer in my laboratory? See if you like more of the basic science, hands-on research part of, of genetics. And turns out I really liked it and I had a knack for it. So my suggestion is if you're building yourself up and you get to this moment of thinking your dream job is the worst job in the whole wide world, have mentors around you that have um, are have seen this happen many times before, and they have mm -hmm. ideas about which way to go next. And at this point, Brittany, you are all the way in the lab. You design his tract, pivot to entrepreneur world. Like how in the world, right? Do you always knew that is the zest within you, or how does mm -hmm. that come about? And was it a scary journey for you? Um, <laughs> entrepreneurship. I've been doing entrepreneurship way longer than I thought. I was because I didn't know what I was. I didn't know I was doing entrepreneurship. Right. Until later, people were like, oh, you're, you're a born entrepreneur. I'm like, I, I was. OK, well, you know, I was the Girl Scout when I was like nine years old. I was the Girl Scout that was going to sell the most cookies. And I would go to every neighborhood and I would knock on every door and I would sell those cookies. And so I was like a little hustler, even from age like eight or nine, because I wanted that badge on my little vest. And so I've been hustling since then. Um, and then, uh, in college, I, you know, again, I come from a very, you know, uh, low income family who wasn't able to afford college for me. Luckily I had a lot of scholarships, but there's still expenses. And, um, I worked uh, full time at a optometrist office as a medical technician, but I also, when you listen to this, I also sold sex toys in college actually. So I was an independent distributor of Athena's Home Novelties, which is a company that you can like be a, um, like a, you know, a sell salesperson for, and you get like $2,000 worth of product. So I'm in my dorm room and I have $2,000 worth of like dildos and I'm hustling and I'm wearing scrubs at the medical technician. I'm doing research in the Alzheimer's lab. And on the weekends, Friday and Saturday nights, I would go to the Greek houses and I would do passion parties. And I would talk to people about sex toys and sexual wellness and like sexual hygiene, like cleaning your toys and the bacteria that might grow on them. And, and people would ask me all these questions, all these like questions that they had because, and I look back to that now and I think, yeah, in the United States, we don't really have good sex ed. And so when you got to college and this woman shows up to your frat house, you know, with all these things and is very knowledgeable and open, you know, people ask me really intimate questions that they have always had and never had anyone to ask. And so entrepreneurship right there again. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then also in, um, 
undergrad at Drew University, I was in a genetic seminar and we actually learned about DNA-based attraction. So it was a whole day, like the lesson that day and the professor, Dr. Stephen Dunaway, he's up on the chalkboard or dry erase by camera. He's, he's writing about HLA genes and attraction. And I said, professor, could I make a geneharmony.com? And, you know, everyone kind of looked and scoffed and he was like, I mean, I guess you could, that's weird, but yeah. And I was like, that is so cool. And like in my, I was just like thinking that so sweet and dope, you know, everyone else was kind of more of the scientists that were like DNA based dating website. Like that's kind of strange. But for me, I just have always been like, that would be super cool. And so I kept that idea in the back of my mind. And while I was in my PhD program, again, total like career crisis, like who am I, what I want to do, what I want to be, um, not necessarily thinking I've been an entrepreneur, but I was, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I just had told people I, when I started to get involved in the startup community, I said, I mean, I love entrepreneurship, but I only have one idea and it's crazy. It's a DNA based dating app. And people were like, are you kidding me? That's awesome you should do it. And I'm like, but I'm not like curing diabetes. I'm not making a heart valve for heart attack, you know? And they were like, whatever, like dude, DNA based dating app, like that's awesome. And so, um, I was actually inspired by the presidential election in 2016. I was so upset about the direction of our country and I won't get too political here, but I'll say I was inspired to make change in the world. And I started my company Faramore, uh, in December of 2016. And, um, honestly it was, it was a, it was a activist move because I didn't think I wanted to work in dating for the rest of my life. And thank God I'm not anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, but it was an idea I had that I thought if I pursue this and I can make a name for myself, if I can make, you know, um, financial liberation for myself, if I can have money, I think I'll have more influence on the world and hopefully it can make it a place that I, I want to live in. Mm-hmm. That idea, were you never afraid? Because at this point, Brittany, you are this fireball. You like going to selling this beautiful, you know, toy at a flat house in the weekends. You are hustling. You do all those things, and you have this crazy idea. It's a dating app, but no one ever done it before. Were you ever afraid, or that just never come to your mind? Uh, I'm when I am definitely afraid. I am human. I'm 110 percent human. In fact, I will share something really authentic with your audience right now. That yesterday I had so much work to do, so much work to do, and I found myself just like crippled with anxiety and like couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't. And I eventually got myself out of bed and then I laid on the couch and I could not get off the couch. And I was just going over and over in my mind about how much money do we have left at Femtech Focus? How long is it going to take to fundraise for Coyote Ventures? How much money do I have in my savings? Um, you know, just this like societal pressure to like help have health insurance and like a savings and a 401k. And I was like, I don't have any of those things. And so if any of y'all are listening and you're a founder or like, you know, you're starting anything and it's scary, or maybe you're going to school, you know, or maybe you're like moving to a new country or, and it's like, you have those days of like, wait, I think I might be helpless and hopeless. Like, I don't know if I could do this. And you feel like you can't get out of bed. I mean, all I can say is that that was me yesterday. And, um, you know, I called a friend and, uh, (laughs) took me till 6 PM that I was like, Oh yeah. Phone a friend. That's an, that's a self. I phoned a friend around 6 PM and, uh, she had me over for dinner and I just cried it out. And, you know, she said, tomorrow's going to be better. And today I woke up and I said, today's going to be amazing. And all so far, like today has been amazing. And so, um, Anyways, I just wanted to share that personal story when you say like, have, are you ever afraid? Oh, girl. Oh, girl. Not only am I afraid, sometimes I'm like disabled by the fear of it. Um, and that's okay. It's part of the process. It makes me stronger. Mm-hmm. And I rather a life of ups and downs than every single week it looking exactly the same with the same paycheck and the same coworkers. I'd much rather live the life I am right now. Girl, you are such a fireball and I'm so, so inspired by you because, you know, my personal opinion is I don't think people are courageous it's because that person don't have fear. I think true mm-hmm. courageous as you move, move forward in the presence of the fear. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what you've done, whether it's from the first venture to today, every single step along the journey and never be easy and just keep moving through. And I, 
really admired by that. I'm curious, you know, Brittany, what drives you? Because salsa is when you were little selling the cookies, you know, girls got cookies, yeah. all the way, all the things. There's a fire in your chest. Whether it's you want to win or you want to make a name, what really drives you? Why do you so passionate about what you do? My goodness. I'll give you the like therapist answer for why I think I do the <laughs> things I do. <laughs> and then I'll also give you the like current day one. Um, but I, I, I feel like I want to be remembered. Um, you know, again, I'll share honestly on your podcast here that my dad had a traumatic brain injury when I was six years old. He was in an accident and he forgot who I was. And we never really rebonded after that. He just was too disabled for it. And so since this is what my therapist would tell you, y'all, so listen up. <laughs> like it's in the notes that, uh, you know, I have a fear of being forgotten. Right. And so I do see what I do a lot of times is like, OK, I see how this is manifesting. Uh, I have a fear of being forgotten. So I want to leave a legacy. But here's the thing, y'all. You don't need to like once you figure out like if uh, certain actions you're taking are based on, you know, childhood trauma, use it to your advantage. Right. So it's like I understand it, but it doesn't mean that I need to like cancel myself and be like, oops, this is a giant trauma response. <laughs> you know, and like go work in a quiet laboratory by myself. No, I can continue to pursue this desire. I have to be remembered, but now I know that like kind of that underlying foundational desire underneath ask myself is if it's true and it's true. I do want to be known. I do want to leave, you know, um, for me, I want to do positive impact, you know? And so when I ask myself is, uh, selling sex toys, the be all end all changing the world, it changes the world for a few handful of people. I want a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. Helping people find love using DNA. Like that's also a great cause, but it, it was limited. Um, because by the way, helping people find love using science, it sounds a lot better than it is in real life. It's actually really hard <laughs> to help people find love using science alone. Anyways, uh, but you know, now in femtech, innovation in women's health and wellness, I feel like I can have impact not only on every woman in the world, but the women that they birth and the women that birth them mm -hmm. and the women three generations from now. And in fact, it's not just women, but it's children and men, mm -hmm. because if you improve women's health, you improve everybody's health. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, yeah. What is this like thing that drives me? It's like, I want to leave a legacy. I want to make impact and I want to make the biggest one possible. Something that makes me just jump out of bed in the morning and be like, I'm doing important work, you know, and like the unit and I have faith that if you do important work, like the universe will continue to provide, you know, mm -hmm. you know, for now, it sounds so cheesy, but I really think you are making this world a better place. Just with your, <laughs> with your passion, your presence, it's just, oh my God, what a gift. So back to your story, right? 2016, December, you start Fairmore. So tell us about that journey. How do you start from, how does that process work? And how do you pivot into a fan focus, fan type focus? So I think one of the gifts I've been given, and I want everyone to try to give it to themselves as well, is I had the gift of ignorance. Um, I thought I'm a full-time PhD student. I'm going to start a DNA-based dating app and I'm going to raise a million dollars for it. Now, if you if you asked me today, hey, do you think, how what's the likelihood of this working out? I would be like 0%. No one would invest in a full-time PhD student. She doesn't, she's never made an app before. Like I would make this long list of reasons I would not invest in this human. But in 2016, I didn't know that. Or now, you know, 2017, I was like, I didn't know that. So I just like went out there and I was like, I'm fundraising a million dollars. I'm Brittany. I'm a PhD student. I'm starting this dating app. And, you know, because I went out there with this ignorance about like, you know, how much traction you need in order to fundraise, like all, I just went out there. People said, you know what? Yeah, here you go. Here's some money, you know, um, because I didn't know that like, what I should be afraid of. And I didn't know what wasn't possible or what, what I just thought like, Oh, I like read a book on venture capital. Like I'm just going to go out there and like do it. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you're, when you go out there and you just do it and you don't think about all the ways it could not happen, it's happens. So I went out there and I fundraised $1.3 million from angels around Texas and uh, built a team. I had an amazing co-founder, Dr. Bin Huang. He's a 
um, data analytics guy. And he mm-hmm. and I were the best business partners. Y'all find yourself a good business partner. If you find one, never let them go. Ben and I still talk all the time. He helps me out all the time with my new ventures. But Ben is the introvert. I am the extrovert. He is the back end operations. I am the front end visionary fundraiser. We, you know, mm-hmm. I speak very blunt. He's from China. He loves things to be very blunt. He's like, please don't, you know, like give it to me direct. And so, um, best business partner. We built a team. We built the app. We launched it. Apps are way more expensive and harder to make than I ever thought, by the way. I learned a lot. Um, and we built this algorithm. So it was a um, little box would come in the mail and you would uh, swab the inside of your cheek and you would send it back to us and we would sequence these 11 genes called your human leukocyte antigen genes. All you need to know is that these 11 HLA genes are actually uh, creating proteins for your immune system. And science has shown that the more different your immune systems are, the more likely you are to have physical chemistry. And it's based on evolutionary principles. We know who our sisters and brothers are, but you know, animals in nature don't necessarily know. And so they use pheromones to sense, is your immune system like mine? Because if it if it's like mine, we're probably related and we shouldn't meet. But if they smell the pheromones of somebody with very different immune system, their body naturally reacts to it. Um, and you know, they mate. for humans. What we do is that when we're on a really great first date, feeling attraction, pheromones work on us too. We're animals. And so what it looks like attraction looks like for us is blushing of the face, mm-hmm. um, brain farts. So like, uh, forgetting what you're talking about. So if you're on a first date and you're like, what were we talking about? You're on a good first date. If you lose your appetite, that's a good first date signal. If your palms are sweaty, that's those are all literal biological symptoms of the pheromones working on the brain. So that's what we based the dating app off of. Sold the DNA test. And so singles were able to meet local singles uh, based on the gender and age they were looking for. And then we also provided a compatibility score. We said, you know, you're 85% compatible. Um, and so that's that was Faramore. It was really awesome. So what happened from there? Oh, what happened was that in February of 2019, Apple decided to create some policies around who can ask for DNA in the app store. So previously, anyone could make an app and say, send me your genome. Um, As a geneticist, I do think that that's dangerous. There's not there's not like biohackers yet. But one day in the future, somebody might be in their garage biohacking, you know, genetically engineering, God knows what. And so it's good that Apple started to put some policies into who's allowed to make an app and ask for you to send their spit in, right? Um, So that's great. Not so great for Faramore because in uh, that list and the policy of of what kind of apps can and cannot ask for your DNA, dating apps were prohibited. And so we got kicked off the app store. And so all of a sudden, thousands and thousands of users were emailing me out like out of craziness saying, what's wrong with the app? And I'm like, I don't know. And Apple, if anyone is listening and you've ever tried to make an app, Apple does not have a 1-800 call line. Okay. You got to email them and you got to wait a week. You got to like petition. Oh my God. They're the hardest people to get in touch with. And also Apple doesn't even listen to the government. They're not going to, they don't listen to the FBI. They are not going to listen a little Brit who says, please change your rules. My dating app needs to be on there, right? They just said, sorry, it's the new rule. Take the DNA out of it. Otherwise, you're not allowed in the app store. And at that point, we just said, we are literally a DNA-based dating app. We cannot take the DNA out of the DNA-based dating app. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Uh, And so we ended up closing the company in June 2019. That must be a hard it was hard. Take, how do you take that, right? You at the time you said you are the face of the business. You are fundraising. You're telling the whole world how incredible discovery you have. How would you take that hard note oh back God. to your team, back to your customer, back to all the shareholder who truly trust you and just adored you at what you do? When I feel like you have my therapist folder and you're just like, so let's talk about this phase of your life that was really hard. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, it was devastating. I've never closed a company before. Um, I've heard 
that 90% of startups don't make it. But I felt like I never met anyone who was like, <laughs> my company died, you know? And so it felt really lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like as a young woman scientist, I was letting down all females, all scientists that were founders. Um, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. And I, you know, I was scared for what was next. I, you know, have a PhD in genetics, but now I've just been working the dating thing. Like, what do I do next? Do I go back to the laboratory? Mm-hmm. Also in Houston, Texas, I was the Faramore lady, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when you literally are referred to as your company that then died, you have to actually question your own identity. <laughs> who am I <laughs> if Faramore's dead? I'm not dead. So then who am I? Um, yeah, my hair was falling out. I was very stressed, um, cried a lot. Thank God I had some really amazing friends. And I had one, at least one really amazing investor. And so I'll share these two things. The first one is that I was, you know, with my friends and just totally devastated. And they had seen the journey from idea to then. And, you know, I remember they started to say, well, Britt, maybe you could just get a regular job with like a salary. And I was like, huh. Oh yeah, maybe I could do that. And that's when I applied for a venture capital position and got into investing and realized I really like this thing. So it was it was honestly like a, a trampoline. It was the bouncing off to the next mm-hmm. thing, the launch to the next thing. It wasn't the demise. It was just the next step. Um, and then I'll share one thing about this really fantastic investor, Dr. Jack Gill. He was one of my first and my biggest investors at Faramore. And he is a... Um, you know, very senior man in Houston, lovely human. He made a lot of money in Silicon Valley uh, via venture capital. So he's a very experienced investor. Um, He asked me for breakfast and I went to that breakfast. I could literally feel the weight on my shoulders. I felt like I had let this man down. He was my first investor. He was my biggest investor. He helped me bring in other investors. I just felt like, oh, the shame, the shame, the shame. Like it was, it was so heavy. And I walked into this like diner and he's, he's always there early and he's reading his newspaper and he sees me and he puts down the newspaper and he gets up and he comes over and he pats me on my shoulders and he says, congratulations, you're a real entrepreneur now. You're one step closer to your successful company. And I mean, when seriously, like the weight just like melted off. It was just like, oh, melted into a big fat puddle right there because I was like, What? I, I, I thought I was coming here to be like disciplined or shamed or told like never show my face, like get out of the end. You know, I don't know what I thought, but it wasn't congratulations. That is not, that's the last thing I thought. And mm-hmm. the fact that he was excited for me, cause he said, this is investing nine out of 10 die. So that's why I got to invest in a lot of them. Um, I just felt like such relief. And so if you are listening and you are, you know, uh, closing down your company and feeling like you don't know what you're doing, you, you're you just on the next step towards your journey. What an experience, Brittany. And, and thank you. Thank you so much for being so open and authentic. I think oftentimes those stories have not been shared. Therefore, you know, but when that actually happened, you felt so alone. Yes. That but statistically, we know it's not all the startups make it. 90% of them don't. So the fact that you share, I really think it really gives others permission to also be authentic and also be 100%. honest. If the venture did not, you know, went well, which is part of the possibilities, it's still okay. They still going to be tomorrow. That's so right. on that note, what is one, you know, piece of advice you will share with entrepreneurs who are in the process, right, in the journey, in that trenches, in those deep, deep, big failures. And it's not easy. It's not even easy to, expl- to explain to people what happened. How <laughs> advise him or her? You know, I would say to stick around the people that are positive and cut out the haters. So you, <laughs> I had uh, my, it's so funny, it's, but it's, it's absolutely true in every situation. Your smallest checks are the most annoying investors promise you. So Jack Gill, he was the biggest investor and he was the most encouraging when we closed. He lost all this money and he was like, whatever, like you're awesome. Now the smallest investors, itty bitty baby checks, they were like emailing me and texting me like, oh my God, I can't believe you lost my money. This is crazy. And I took it so personally, you know, and what I needed to do, especially after I talked to Jack, who was a professional investor and like a big deal, 
I realized that these little ones, they're just inexperienced investors. And so for them, it was a big loss, right? They didn't, they're not used to losing their money. Just like I wasn't used to closing a company. They had similar feelings. Um, they took it out on me. I took it out on me, <laughs> you know, internally. Um, and what I needed to do is just like, be like, Hey, that's how the cookie crumbles. You know, like I know I did the best I could like ask mm-hmm. yourself, did I give it my best? Did I do everything I could? Yes. So like today, remember yesterday I said, I, I, I said it today, but yesterday I was, uh, like crippled with anxiety. Couldn't do any, I couldn't accomplish anything. I wasted mm-hmm. a whole day, quote unquote wasted. Well, today I decided, I have 300 people I need to email about potentially investing in our fund. All I'm going to do today is send those emails and I will know in my heart of hearts that like I did everything I could, right? Like just spraying and praying and like trying to increase my chances of success. And at night I know I can go to bed being like, I tried my best. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, that's my advice for y'all is just, you know, do what is in your heart, what your body says, you know, um, is the right thing for you to do. And just uh, make sure you have supporters around you because this journey is hard. And anyone who's naysayers, cut them out, clear the clutter, clear the clutter, y'all. You don't even know how much energy toxic people are taking up. You have no idea until they're cut out. And then you're going to be like, whoa, like, look at all of this space and bandwidth and happiness. I didn't know I'm going to have, you know, (laughs) whoa, that person was taking a lot. So cut them out. Pivoting from that first venture, you know, oh man, you are not afraid. You are right away pivoting, turn around, you know, after quickly you start another venture, whether it's Fanta Focus or today's Coyote Venture, right? Yes. What's up with that? Are you just like, you know what? I'm not afraid. I'm going to do it again. Like what is the thought process behind what inspired you to start those, right? What, what are you trying to accomplish? All right. So I, first I go into venture capital mostly because I needed a job. You know, I was like, I have no more income. I need a job. And so I worked for Capital Factory and, um, you know, Capital Factory is incredible. They did so much for me in terms of teaching me about venture capital and increasing my network, um, like just mentorship. But at the end of the day, you know, I was the head of the Houston market, which included a lot of oil and gas, Mm -hmm. energy, logistics, supply chain management. And I could literally cry by how bored I was. (laughs) I did not care about shipping security, cybersecurity software. Like I didn't care. I could not care less. But whenever a deal or a company came out of the Houston Medical Center, I I was like, oh, wow, this is impactful. This is important. Um, But even more so, I met a few femtech companies. So again, femtech is innovation in women's health and wellness. I met a few of those companies and I was overwhelmed by like um, just felt the purpose of their companies. You know, mm-hmm. I saw, I always give this example of like, you know, there's this one company that I really liked in Texas. Uh, it was like a knee brace for ACL recovery. It was like a AI mm-hmm. smart brace, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. And then there was like <laughs> um, this femtech company that was like reinventing the speculum, which is the device used when women get their annual uh, pap. And it's very uncomfortable and it's actually quite barbaric and archaic. And it's like 250 years old and no one's ever updated it since. And so when I met that company and they said, we're going to update the speculum, I was like, hell yeah, you are like that, that needs to get updated. You know, like, what are we doing? You know? Um, and so I always found myself like when I found a women's health company, just overly motivated to want to support them and help them. Um, you know, Capital Factory knew that I had, I, I, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And so after about 18 months with them, laying the groundwork for their Houston branch, um, launching it, getting it like up, you know, well-oiled machine. I told them, you know, Hey, it's, uh, I'm really want to start pursuing the femtech stuff. And so what I started was when we went into lockdown last March, March, 2020, we all will never forget March, 2020, um, <laughs> when we were told to stay home, um, I decided to start a podcast because there was no femtech podcast at the time. In fact, there was like a huge, a lot missing from femtech in terms of infrastructure. There was only one femtech venture fund at the time. There was one Slack channel for femtech. There was no conference. 
Um, there was no podcast. There was no media outlet. So it was like, um, wow, it was like really in need. <laughs> and so I uh, went into lockdown to start the podcast, just interviewing people, posting it on Spotify. Next thing I knew, um, by May, we had like 10,000 listeners in like a dozen countries. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm onto something. So by June, I uh, quit my day job at Capital Factory and um, pursued Femtech Focus full time. So for the last year, we've been building this community building my expertise. Um, I'm now seen as like a world expert in women's health innovation, which by the way, I think is kind of crap. And I wish that it couldn't be possible that somebody works in an industry for one year and becomes an expert, specifically women's health. Women's health is so important. There should be so many more people way smarter than me in it, right? Like I shouldn't be able to become an expert in women's health within one year. Like that's, to me speaks to the volume of like how um, how le- there's a systemic and historical exclusion of women from mm-hmm. medicine and from science and from innovation. And the fact that I was in it for one year and now I'm like a world expert is like, shouldn't be the case anyways. Um, <laughs> and so over this last year, we've done a lot of research and publications and we have a thousand founders in our community, um, over 120 episodes of the podcast, 30,000 downloads, crazy. Now we're in a position to start a venture fund. So Coyote Ventures is a $10 million seed stage venture fund investing in early stage women's health and wellness startups. You know, along the journey, there are challenges come to your way, but you just keep the heads up. You just continue to focus on, follow your light, focus on what really yeah. you enjoy. And today, like, you know, just see how all this passion unfold is just so incredible. Um, and since, you know, you are today starting a venture, I'm curious, you know, you probably are working with so many entrepreneurs in the past, you know, also will be in the future. What kind of entrepreneur you are looking for, if you don't mind sure, in terms of, who do you see that, you know, what kind of profile you are looking for to support through Coyote Venture? Absolutely. So, I mean, we can talk about the type of company as well, um, but you asked about the founder. And I do think that's, um, you know, even if you have a great femtech company, if the founder is not the good fit, you know, that's not who we want involved. So um, my co-founder, Jess Carr, and I, we discovered that we want to be a venture fund that actually cares about the mental health and the physical well-being of our founders. If we're a health and wellness company, we can't, we don't want to not care about those things. And most times investors uh, don't necessarily, not that they don't care about founders' health, but they don't make it a priority, like something that they bring up. They just hope like that they're fine. Um, And so for (laughs) us, we want to make, we want to be very forward and asking our founders, how are you doing? Like, Mm -hmm. what support do you need? Like, are you going doing yoga? Do you need that? Like what, you know, like being investors that say you have permission to block your calendar on Friday mornings if you want to go, you know, do an activity you love, you know, like you're allowed to do that. Um, We also want to do annual retreats. And so one of the things I've been doing is when I meet with founders that are pitching to us for money, I ask myself, could I see myself in a beach house with this person for three days? You know, like, can I see them like brainstorming with giant post-it notes in this huge living room that we rented, you know, for the weekend? And, you know, do I see them collaborating with other founders and, you know, maybe they come across a resource that isn't right for their company, but they know about another company in the portfolio it's useful for. Are they the kind of person that forwards it over, says, hey, I thought about you, you know? Um, that's the kind of founder I want. One that's collaborative, thinking about others. Um, the majority of femtech founders are women solving our own problems, but we love our male femtech founders as well. Uh, Viagra was made with the help of women. So we think that femtech should be... Uh, helped by men as well. We need everybody working on this. We don't just birth women, we birth men too. And so, um, you know, we're just looking for people that are honest. I personally love uh, founders that, you know, just touch base with you. Just like, hey, here's what's going on. Here's some new updates. And And they're not like, can I have your money? They're just like, hey, listen, just giving you updates because that's what dating is all about, right? And that's what investing is all about. It's about like getting to know one another. The founders that come knocking on your door that say, you know, we have no more money. We need money. I don't know you, but give me your money. It's like, whoa, like this, it's not attractive. <laughs> and mm-hmm. often it doesn't work that way. So those are some of the qualities I'm looking for in a founder. 
thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious, you know, Brendan, you are transitioning from entrepreneur yourself and into today the venture world. I'm curious, you know, now you see the spectrum. What's the difference between entrepreneur versus venture capitalist? <laughs> like, Completely different perspective regarding the world you're seeing, right? That is really funny you say that because I was very afraid of investors. <laughs> Um, when I started Faramore, because I thought these were the most financially savvy, legal savvy, contract, term sheet, negotiating gurus of the world. And they knew about industry trends and market sizes. And who am I? I know, know nothing. And yet when I became a VC at Capital Factory and I started to work with venture capitalists and angels and I started to really like just talk to them every day, I was like, oh, no, they're just like regular people. They I, like I we need to like let founders know that they don't need to be afraid of these folks, you know? Um in fact, there's like a lot of nuances to investors that I actually expose to founders a lot of times. Um so for example, I always tell founders an investor will never say they're confused, they'll just say no. So there's like this unfortunately an ego thing in in investors that instead of saying I don't understand that term, or I don't understand what your this thing or that market strategy. Can you rephrase that or say it again? Instead, they'll just say, mm, it's not the right deal for me. And the founder will never know like, oh, I'm not explaining this right. You know, or the founder won't know like, oh, this is confusing them, you know, because investors for some reason, just like, don't give that feedback. They just pass on the deal. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really passionate about like telling founders the truth, <laughs> you know, um, about what happens behind closed doors in investor meetings. Um, and then also telling them the truth about their deck. I tell plenty of founders their deck is garbage. I tell, I, I call myself the pitch bitch because I tell everybody that their pitches are the worst, but I'm saying it with love and I'm saying it with advice on how to fix it. I'm not just saying, hey, this sucks. Bye. I'm saying it sucks. Here's the five things you need to change immediately. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden their decks are amazing and their pitches are amazing. And then I'm happy and everyone's happy and they get funding and everything's great. But, um, you know, that founder may have showed that pitch deck and done that pitch to 100 investors and no one said this sucks. You know, they just mm -hmm. all didn't respond. And the founders oftentimes founders of color founders, women founders, we're the ones left with like, what am, what's not working here? You know, um, mm -hmm. no one gave them that feedback. I love that. And thank you so much for being such a voice authentically, truly connect and share with uh, founders. I think we all truly appreciate that. And since, you know, you call yourself, you know, pitch queen or pitch deck, all that <laughs> amazing turn. I'm curious, what is number one biggest, biggest uh, issue or trouble you're seeing reviewing thousands of pitch, you know? Through oh, your experience? I already know. I know exactly which one it is. This is the number one problem I see. Um, on your ask slide founders, so near the end of your desk when you have a, a deck and when you have a slide that says, you know, we're seeking $2 million or whatever, if you have a pie chart currently in your pitch deck that says 30% salaries, 20% marketing, blah, 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 I want you to do yourself a favor, pause the podcast for a second and go delete that pie chart. That pie chart is the vein of my existence because investors... We care very, very little about how you're going to spend our money, okay, on, on like on what, right? We actually don't care. What I care about as an investor is what milestones will you accomplish with my money that will therefore increase the value of your company and thus increase the value of my investment. So what do I mean by that? I mean that I want you to have a slide that says seeking $2 million to accomplish the following milestones and pick four to five very large goals, launching product version two, expanding to, you know, the Eastern region of the United States, you know, obtaining 50,000 new customers. These are examples of milestones, um, the list four or five. And that's what I will hold against you or like mm -hmm. hold you up to, um, in terms of like, do you accomplish your milestones? Now, if, if you have a list of, of milestones and the pie chart that corresponds to that is that you just pay yourself all of the money, whatever. I don't care. I don't care if you spend all of that money just on Facebook ads. What I, I don't, whatever, as long as it ends up that you accomplish those milestones that increase the value of your company, I don't care what you spend it on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so get rid of that pie chart y'all. I don't care about where you allocate it. I care about what you're going to accomplish with it.
Thank you so much for sharing. I think a lot of entrepreneurs really need to hear that. So incredible. Uh, now I'm going to pivot a little bit uh, back to your story. And Brittany, in the beginning, you share about, you know, you always want to make an impact. You wanted to make a man. You want to leave a mark on this planet. And you talk about a lot of journeys, how you cut up every step along the journey, kind of accomplish that. I'm curious, what is the definition of success mean for you? And with that, are you successful? When? Man, you are good. You are good because, um, you know, last night when I called up that girlfriend and was, I told her, I said, I feel like a fraud. I feel like I've, I never crossed the finish line. You know, yes, I finished my PhD, but only with one paper. And, you know, like, so I have all these things in my mind about why even my PhD is fraudulent, which, you know, like, talk about high expectations, Jesus. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I started Faramore and Faramore didn't exit. Right. And so therefore I feel like it's a, and that's what we call it in the industry, a failure, which I think is actually very uh, negative term, especially if 90% of us are failing. Like that's horrible. We need to like, mm -hmm. you know, we need to do something about that terminology. Um, <laughs> so, and then I was a venture capitalist with Capital Factory, now Femtech Focus. But I always feel like I haven't had like this big exit or like this big, you know, I'm so financially insecure. You know, we run Femtech Focus off donations. Coyote Ventures is just getting started. So I still feel financially insecure. And so I guess at the end of the day, sometimes I don't feel successful because success in my mind's eye looks like financial um freedom. Like I can, you know, fix my car that has had a crack in its windshield for like three years. Like I could, uh, you know, not consider getting a roommate to help pay my rent. I could, you know, take vacations if I wanted, I could blah, blah, blah. Um, but when I really ask myself, like, is like having lots of money, the only version of success, it's like, no way. Oh my God. I have been so successful. Like I have been so successful in spite of the cards I was dealt. You know, I was not raised in a family that was like, you're going to do big things. You know, you wasn't raised in a community that was like, you know, you're number one. I was like super mediocre under the radar. Honestly, it was a quite troubled teenager. Like, I don't think anyone would have put money on me to be a winner. Um, and just, uh, I just got, you know, a few people that kept seeing this light in me and said, you know what, you should try out for this. And I would try out for it, or I'd apply for a scholarship, or I would apply for a program. And there would be that one person in the room saying, I know she's not qualified based on all these things, but there's something about her. I believe in, you know, and like, they took a chance. Like a lot of people have taken chances on me and like, I arose to the occasion. And so when you ask, like, am I successful? What does success look like? if I can put the capitalism aside for a second, I'm like super, super successful. <laughs> like, yeah, I thank you for helping me talk that out loud for my own self. Yeah. Thank you for being so honest, authentic about this journey, because especially from an entrepreneurial perspective, right? Every single decision, the path you take is a bet, and you are truly mm -hmm. a risk taker. And really, I, I one thing I admire most about you is you just such a, bold risk you just follow your heart despite what all the noises out outside around set and i think that truly is one defining characteristic i see entrepreneur and successful entrepreneur is so mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that thank you for being authentic and i'm curious you know if if i have a magic wand if you go back would you change anything i'm curious uh -huh. oh my goodness um <laughs> I mean, probably not, but if I could just like adjust a few things <laughs> that stress, like, um, I would, uh, like, <laughs> um, I had a, I had a third business partner at Faramore that I kept around for way too long because I was insecure, uh, thinking I needed this person on the team. And I finally gained enough courage after like a year of this person on the team that I finally kicked them out. Um, and that was like way too long. That was a year of, of questioning my own leadership. Um, and that I will never do that again. I know who I am. I know I'm the CEO. I know I'm the leader and I don't need somebody else. That's a negative Nancy, just because I think they may have some skill sets that I need. Um, mm -hmm. that's not the case. So I would change that. But at the same time, like 
I now have this huge lesson, life lesson. I would just decrease the amount of time of suffering. <laughs> I, <would> just, <laughs> I wish the suffering wasn't a year. I wish it was like 90 days. Um, and then, you know, otherwise I would, I would, um, I think that actually wraps into that and that message I gave earlier of if you have negative energy in your life, cut it out. Mm-hmm. There's people in your life that when you get off the phone, you feel like eating an entire pizza and, you know, like making poor health choices for yourself. You may question, is this person like really contributing to my happiness, my positive, mm-hmm. energy, you know, um, because you deserve all the positive energy. And by the way, I am also referring to your family. So personally, I think, you know, the whole like, well, they're your family is crap because, um, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, they're your family. Also, you're a human being with emotions and a psyche. And like, if your emotions and psyche don't do well when you interact with your family, then like, I have a chosen family. You know, I have I have friends that I have essentially brought in so close to me that I, I truly feel they they are my sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so surround yourself with that energy and uh, uh, don't feel obligated by cultural norms about what you should be doing. Do mm-hmm. it. You know, in the end, do the experiment. Run the science. Run the experiment. When you do this, how do you feel after? How do you behave after? When you don't do this. How do you feel or how do you behave after, right? Do the experiment. And what I've seen is like when I don't have certain people in my life, I do really awesome. (laughs) You know, when I have certain people in my life, I feel kind of bad. So, um, yeah, yeah. Like when? I want to keep you in my life. You make me feel great. I'm like, all right, on my list of people who I can call for pep talk. (laughs) When's all Yes. I am your biggest supporter, Brittany. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you so much for being so authentic and truly sure review all the journey. I think those are such insightful, insightful, beautiful um, knowledge that a lot of entrepreneurs can really just, oh my God, this is, I, I feel like we don't talk about those enough. I think we talk so much about success, all the you know, private jet, all the um, incredible islands, but yeah, this is the rubber hits the road. This is what true entrepreneurship truly means. So I'm truly yeah. honored. Just want to, you know, thank you, Brittany, for being such a beautiful force and such a change for the good. And I really just honor, you know, have you today share your journey. And, you know, thank you so much for me for all your wisdoms. And, you know, thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. I wish you enjoyed it because I so, so, so enjoyed it. And hope you all have a magical day. We will see you guys next week. Bye, guys.